Welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor, and in this episode, we've got a journal club. So I'm joined by a few colleagues, and we are going to be discussing a paper. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hello, Victor. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Patty. Welcome to the show, Patty. Thanks very much for having me, Victor. So because this is your first time on the show, could you introduce yourselves to us? Uh, Joe, what have you start us off? Yes, I used to be a secondary school uh, science teacher. I was teaching for about four years, four or five years in kind of East London schools. And now I'm working with uh, Victor in the Natural History Museum as a science educator. Paddy, can you introduce yourself to us? I work in environmental education at the moment with a couple of charities in London. And I also, like Joe, used to be a secondary school science teacher. I'm teaching from 11 to 18-year-olds. and teaching A-level biology like I think Joe was as well. Um, And I also volunteer at the Natural History Museum in the learning department as a a learning volunteer. Excellent. So that's why I thought you two would be really great for this episode, actually, because the paper that we're discussing in this first Journal Club one has some implications, I think, for, for science education. And both of you guys have taught science in schools and have also been involved in teaching science outside of schools. So it's a great perspective to have on this paper, I think. Um, So the paper that we're talking about is called Unquestioned Answers or Unanswered Questions, Beliefs About Science Guides Responses to Uncertainty in Climate Change Risk Communication. This paper was published in the journal Risk Analysis back in 2012. It's by Anna Rabinovich and Thomas Morton. Uh, So in this paper, what they did is they looked at um, different models of how people can view science. So they identified kind of a classical way of thinking about science. And this is in this model, the purpose of science is to uncover objective truth about the physical world and to provide proof about the validity of that knowledge. And so this suggests that there's just one truth that's out there in the universe that science kind of uncovers and then communicates. The other model that they identified, they call the Kuhnian model. And this is articulated in the writings of Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn. And in this model, science is a series of ways of seeing the world, what they call paradigms. And what scientists do is debate these different paradigms, and they look at predictions that those paradigms might make. They look at evidence to support these different paradigms. And then eventually what happens is uh, the scientific community, everyone kind of converges on one of those paradigms. Now, this Kuhnian model then suggests that actually there can be multiple versions of what is true. And what they did in this paper is they also did a little bit of experimentation. So they conducted surveys with participants looking at how the participants viewed the nature of science, what they thought the nature of science was. And then they gave them a piece of text to read about the seriousness of climate change and then gave them a survey that asked them how likely they were to take certain actions to combat climate change. And what they found in the two experiments they ran was that um, contrary to what usually people think, where uh, I think usually in science communication, we think that if we talk about the uncertainties in science, we feel like perhaps the public will be less receptive to that message because they think, oh, the scientists aren't quite sure, we're not going to do anything about it. But what these guys found is that 
In the cases where participants held the Kuhnian model, where science is about debate and discussion about these different paradigms, they found that in communicating the uncertainty in the science, those participants who held this Kuhnian model of science were more likely to take action. So they were actually in some ways reassured by the uncertainty. That's a quick summary. And so I'm curious what you guys, what your thoughts are. I like to just go back to what you said about the, what they found about, you know, the uncertainty actually helping um, the, pe the people that had uh, a more modern view of what science is. I thought that was really cool because that's, you know, that could be super helpful because a lot of this is extremely uncertain. Um, you know, and uh, we might get onto it later, but um, everything about climate science is, I mean, the implications and what's happening is quite negative. So it's, it's really important that we mention uncertainty. And if in doing that, it can actually have more of an effect. Um, I thought that was really cool. I think there was some like surprising elements to the paper, which I thought was was really interesting, and it, it really kind of drew me into to like understand how they actually discovered this kind of causation. I thought that was like one of the really interesting ideas in the paper that they could discover that there might be a link between people's ideas and, and their intentions. Um, in reference to like the models of science, I think. It was interesting that they have these two kind of contradictory ideas of, of what science means to people, but I'm not as sure how like neatly people's understanding of science fits into those categories. So there's a good quote that I heard from another podcast. Uh, it was the This Week in Virology podcast, but one of the hosts there, he likes to use this phrase that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And I think that's the way of thinking about these, yeah. the, this classical view and this Kuhnian model of more uncertainty is that it's, it's not a, a perfect reflection of what is science or how do people see science, but there may be bits of it that are useful. So I think it's good to highlight that, that um, people don't, aren't just gonna neatly fit into one of these two models. And equally, I think not all of the sciences fit in. Like, as you mentioned, Joe, climate science deals with a, like a really chaotic system. So everything we're talking about is probabilistic. And so almost by nature, when you're talking climate science, you are talking about uncertainty. Whereas I think there are other sciences which can arguably be a bit more certain. Um, like maybe physics is on some level uh, kind of a, a harder science, if you will, because it's all about when you get down to things like particle physics, you're making really exact measurements of things. You know, you're measuring tiny quantities of movement and mass. And it's all weird with quantum mechanics, of course, but we don't need to worry about quantum mechanics, I think, right now. <laughs> Do you see any of the aspects of this study reflected in, like, the students that you had while you're teaching? Like, did you notice that some students tended to view science as being about learning facts, others about, like, discussing the evidence? Yeah, I think when when I like when I looked at this paper and read it first, that was kind of the question that I asked myself. And I kind of started pulling out a thread and kind of went further back and back and back. And then I did, like ended up asking myself, actually, what are 
the students taught about science like what are they taught to believe about science you know from a young age because by the time we me and joe would have interacted with them at secondary school there would have been some pre-existing beliefs that that were quite quite rigid um so yeah i i had a look at the national curriculum it seems to me that it starts off very much with stuff like measurements tests classifying identifying there's no explicit mention of that students should be taught about the purpose of science or taught to understand what science does or why we do science but the you know the the information that they are taught about at that stage seems to lend itself very much towards a more classical model and there's no explicit discussion of of this idea that there may be things that we don't know the answer to, whether well, there definitely are things that we don't know the answer to. There may be things we'll never know the answer to. Um, and this kind of more contemporary Kuhnian model doesn't seem to be integrated very much into, into their early years of study anyway. But then by the time you interact with them in a secondary school setting, it may becomes, di- maybe becomes difficult to, to like shift those ideas. They already have this idea and then you're kind of trying to strip it away and say well actually what you thought before that's not really what it's about and it becomes difficult to kind of to kind of mold that new idea that science is is more about questioning and more about you know trying to prove things wrong rather than proving things right yeah much the same i think the whole school system and the whole way the exams work and everything, I just don't think it, it doesn't lend itself to the idea of science and the way science works. It's very much like right or wrong answers. And even the subject science itself, and I think me and Patty have talked about this before, the subject science isn't, it's not reflective of how actual real science works. I mean, you've got practicals in there, um, but it's just, there's no space for them to breathe. There's no space, there's no time. And I, I know inquiry is quite a big thing that they've tried to push through recently. Um, but my experience in schools is that it just it just doesn't happen because there's no there's no time to let it happen. Because you don't a you don't want to get in trouble by your line manager for not getting to a certain point, and b you don't want to let the kids down. You don't want the kids to come back to you and say, "Oh, sir." You talk, you didn't teach us this thing. It was it it was it was on the test. Probably get to this a bit later when you talk about like the methodology and stuff. But I think the idea that they came that that comes out towards the end that the audience's um, ideas of science are malleable is really important. And obviously that's what a lot of secondary school teachers are dealing with that that scenario of trying to convince them that there's more to science and there's more to this this kind of big umbrella term than than they understand it but then just as you're introducing that idea it becomes like this very pressured environment where students have to achieve a certain grade and have to know certain pieces of knowledge and yeah that's where like I would say some resistance comes in with the students then and you you start to see students become frustrated at the idea of uncertainty and I think earlier, Patty, you make a really good point that by the time you see them in secondary school, they're they're in some ways like really set in seeing science as one type of thing. And so even if you are like, even if you have like a really supportive administration 
you know, you're at a school that really wants to try and teach science as a, as a process, it can be really difficult to mold the student's view of science, right, to like to change it. Because while in the paper they did suggest that, okay, your view of science is malleable, at, at the same time, what the paper says is that if you hold this view that science is about just uncovering truth, it makes you less likely to receive messages about uncertainty in like a positive way, right? So what might happen is you could, you could see that a student has this view that no, science is about just knowing facts and truths. And you're trying to tell me that some of these things that I learned are, are not quite so certain. If they're really set, then they're more likely to reject that message as like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. My other teacher said it's definitely this. You're saying maybe it's not. And you're saying maybe, so you're wrong, right? That you can see this, the possibility of this viewpoint. So if we, if we sort of go back to limitations of the paper, one of the things that I saw is between their two experiments, the second one that they did, they tried to alter the participants' views of science by giving them a piece to read for any of their surveys that was supposed to be about the nature of science. And one group, what they read was that science is about facts, it's about uncovering truth. The other group read um, basically that science is more about you know, discussing paradigms and science is a bit more uncertain. And they found that it did shift their beliefs. But my problem with that is that from what I read in the paper, they did not measure the participants' views on science before giving them this treatment piece to read. So it seems to me like they don't actually have a, a particularly strong argument that about malleability. They found a, a correlation between the treatment groups and the views that they were trying to achieve with the treatment. So the, the group that read that science was about was more concrete. That group, when they measured it, they tended towards this more classical view of science. And then the other group that read the other piece, they tended towards the, the Kuhnian kind of view of science. There was a correlation there, but they, they didn't actually measure for causation. Yeah, it's yeah. A, that's a really good point because I, I found that like quite a compelling piece of evidence actually. And now that you mentioned that, it kind of, <laughs> it untangles it a little bit. Yeah. In other research about trying to change people's views on things in behavior science and social psychology, it's... The evidence is that once you hold a view, it's quite difficult to change it because when you're confronted with evidence to the contrary, you tend to you tend to become defensive. So you tend to like solidify your views. Actually, I think when you look at this paper in the context of other research, that piece about views being malleable by something as little as reading one piece of text is is a bit questionable. Yeah, yeah right. that's that's interesting that you you like kind of talk about like that defensive nature because I would definitely have seen that kind of attitude um, happen in, in young people uh, towards certain topics and I know like there is multiple different factors you also mentioned earlier about like my other teacher says this or students learn about science from way more than just their science teacher you know they learn about it from the media from their cultural background from their parents, from their friends, everything. Like they're all, always interacting, forming these ideas. And one of the the concepts that would have caused like some controversy where, you know, there shouldn't have been controversy from my point of view in the classroom was where these kind of topics where there was some like uncertainty. 
um, like like the Big Bang Theory, you know, even natural selection and stuff. Students had views for various different reasons, cultural, religious, the consumption of information and media and things. Students had views that caused them to become defensive when you presented this idea um, and you presented this idea of uncertainty. They, like, I would have experienced that defensiveness. And, yeah, it kind of does lead me to question how how easy it is to change people's views on, on different things. I've definitely, I've encountered it on a more even on a really simple thing, like a really simple example of this defensiveness of views that you already have is kids who they must have read somewhere or heard somewhere, or maybe they just made it up. But like, you know, they'll say that, oh, there was this dinosaur and it was like a thousand meters long. And you're like, really? Where did you hear that? I don't think that's quite right. And the kids will be like super defensive, right? Because they're like, oh, I definitely read it. This fact that, you know, I read it one time even though you know it's like this is this is not true this must be an exaggeration picked up from somewhere who knows but the kids get really defensive about it because it's the thing they already know and no one no one likes to be wrong yeah and there's like this like tangled web of as an adolescent as a teenager they're like creating this idea of themselves and their you know being their culture and everything and they sometimes take these ideas that are different to theirs as kind of like a personal attack or as as like kind of like trying to tear the fabric away from what they already know so what are your thoughts on how we might go about incorporating the results of this into let's start with teaching about science because we've we've been talking a lot about that i think there should be more of a you know a, a skeleton or like a at its core, it should be how science works. And then the content should be built on top of that. Um, and it, it, it should not be as um, as packed as it is. I went to high school back in Canada and I had a math teacher that I think dealt with the, the issues that we're talking about in, in a really good way. The point that he made is that no one memorizes all the formulas that you are forced to memorize in a lot of math classes. You know, like the quadratic equation and all these other formulas that teach you stuff. Or um, what is it? Uh, if you're doing trigonometry, the values of sine and cosine of different angles and things. Like there's no need for you to memorize that because what a mathematician will do is just look it up or use a calculator. And so that was the approach that he took in, in the teaching is like, I'm not going to force you to memorize these like various things that if you were a mathematician, you would just look up. Instead, his focus was on teaching us how to actually use the equations and formulas and how to interpret what the results meant. And I think that you can perhaps take a similar approach in, in science is kind of recognizing that there are certain parts of science that if you were a professional scientist, you would just look up the values of, right? You wouldn't memorize. Um, and then eventually, you know, again, if you were a professional chemist or something, the stuff that you dealt with all the time, you would memorize it eventually. But, you know, if you just don't have a great memory for that, you just keep looking it up. What's really key is, is knowing what you need to do, what you need to look up and how to use it and how to interpret the results that you get. It's the skills and the process is all the, the content you can always look up. But picking up the skills is much more difficult, right? Picking up the, the thinking of the processes that you need to go through is much more difficult. It requires that, that kind of guided instruction. 
but again, as, as you both mentioned, the, the curriculum isn't quite set up um, to teach in that way, but I mean, perhaps it can. Also, I mean, as, as you both mentioned, because it's not really in the curriculum, teachers can try to incorporate these things, but it's up to the individual teachers. And that kind of means that you need to be prepared for that in your teacher training. Do you feel like your teacher training prepared you for that? I know in my teacher training, I don't. Because <laughs> um, I did, did teacher training back in Canada as well for primary school. I feel like a lot of what we did there was looking at uh, assessment and maybe talking about yeah, how yeah. to teach subject areas in like fun, creative ways, but not actually how we should teach certain subjects. Yeah, I, I have a similar experience. I think in my training, it was similarly about creative ways that you can deliver information or more maybe like discovery learning and stuff like that but ultimately discovery learning is you know it's kind of building problem solving skills and creative thinking skills but still kind of aims towards a set goal or a set answer or a set piece of knowledge that they'll have learned or gained at the end of the process so I wouldn't feel very comfortable are able like straight off the bat without any further training to kind of be able to incorporate some of these ideas um and the the most like I'm, it might be quite a cynical view but the other you know element to that is that you you say if they redid the curriculum and brought this idea in into the curriculum incorporated it in they redid the gcse curriculums and the a-level curriculums both within the last five years and they've gone even more like information intensive they've become even more like didactic in, in a sense and there's a lot of formulas like you say you're saying your maths teacher didn't make you learn but in I'd, I'd love to have not had to make my students learn these formulas but they just wouldn't be equipped for for the exams and it's it seems like you feel like you're doing them a disservice by have, making them learn these pieces, little snippets of information that are probably almost certainly going to leave their brain as soon as the exam is done. Like, I think there are opportunities though for, because now the three of us, we all teach outside of the normal classroom settings. And I think there's some room there to teach science in this different way, you know. But that being said, we all still teach classes that come to us from schools and so there is still this pressure to cover you know key facts that are mentioned in the curriculum so it really you know i guess if we do want some kind of systemic change it really needs to come from from the curriculum from the system because it's much more difficult to approach it as individual teachers so what about communicating about science because that's something that we all have moved into a, a bit more i think it's fair to say what do you see are the implications of, of this paper on how we talk about science? One point the paper made is that people are less likely to take the message uh, you are trying to communicate um, if they sense like deception or like um, you trying to trick them in any way. It also says that they're likely um, to be receptive if it's vague in any way. And, uns and uncertainty, uncertainty does not uh, undermine motivations if messages are framed in a more positive way 
So we have to be really positive, uh, re really clear, um, and you know, not trying to deceive them in any way. That's all. Those three things are really difficult to balance when climate science is is quite dire. Like the the real world implications are are quite negative, and you have to try and put a positive spin on that. And there are positive spins, and uh, like like a more equitable world, uh, you know, more social and racial justice, and everything that comes with the changes we'd have to make. But I think it's a that's a tough balancing act. Another way of framing things in a positive way is rather than talking to someone to explain to them why they are wrong, you can explain why you hold the views that you hold. That's kind of a more positive view of it, right? Like, this is why I think what I think and laying out the evidence. And it can be exactly the same information. I think that climate change is human caused because X, Y, Z is very different from no, you're wrong about that. Climate change is human caused because blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, in the latter way, when you are explaining to someone why they're wrong, that puts them on the defensive. Whereas if you explain to someone why you see things the way that you see them, they need to come to you along that journey, right? It's, it's about them trying to understand you. So they're less likely to be on the defensive because you're not, in some ways, you're not launching this direct attack. Um, I did find interesting in the paper, they found that they could present messages to kind of match the view of the person that they were talking to. So if you're talking to someone who holds this more classical view of science, if you, if you give them more certain information, they're more likely to receive that message in a positive way. Whereas someone who thinks of science more of as this process, then actually you presenting the uncertainty in science, the range of evidence for and against, it makes them more likely to accept the message, um, to believe the, the scientific consensus that's been arrived at. So I think that's, that's another track that we can take as science communicators is kind of gauging, okay, what is this person's view of science? You know, what kind of language about science are they using? Are they talking about science as though it's a series of facts? Are they talking about this as though it's some universal truth? Or are they talking to me more about science as a process, as a way of understanding the world, and then delivering your message to match the way that they're talking to you? I think that's a really interesting point. And that was kind of the one element of the, the paper and the conclusions that I thought could actually be really easily implemented into secondary and in mainstream education. Um, I think like te teachers very consciously and very often assess the prior knowledge of their learner. So what information they have and how they can then link new information, new concepts to that prior information and build on top of that. So I think actually just tweaking that, that assessment of prior knowledge slightly to, to have a deeper understanding of how they understand the concept and not just what they understand about a concept could actually be really easy and then using that information to alter the communication and to kind of be more on their level would be really helpful in in an educational setting even within a school i think that that element of the paper could be really powerful i think it's it sounds a bit tricky and difficult to do but in my master's dissertation i actually looked at how people responded to news articles about climate change and when you read through the comments 
you know, they're only leaving maybe two, three sentences worth of comments. But even in that two, three sentences, you can pick out how they understand the nature of science. And so I, I agree. I think that you could assess that in, in your students. And again, for a science teacher, you, you've got that class of students for a whole year. So, you know, by the end of that first few lessons you have with them, you can probably get a pretty good sense of where your students are at in terms of understanding the nature of science. Just to go back to something that you said earlier about like the idea that there's more opportunity for incorporating these kind of concepts into our current work rather than maybe our, our previous work in secondary schools. We're still dealing with students and learners that are in a mainstream school setting, but the teachers and the schools bring them to us to get something different. So I think that using that that freedom that we have in our different scenarios to be consciously different to schools and not just to be another place they sit down and take notes and learn information is really important and that that like really enthuses students as well the idea that they're actually doing something different to their normal day to day i think that that can be really be utilized something i found uh, particularly to investigate like going straight from a secondary school to investigate and see how engaged the students were and having the freedom to to pick whatever they wanted to explore any specimen they wanted and to ask any questions about it that they wanted um, I was always like even with year eights that I see and investigate seeing how much more engaged they are and how much more willing they are to learn and to participate in you know, asking those questions and um, I thought, always thought that was really it's amazing the difference you see is incredible yeah, it's that active participation in generating the knowledge, right? Teaching science in a way that would tend to lead students to thinking that science is just about these universal truths and, and moving towards teaching science as a process of collecting evidence and evaluating that evidence. That difference in how you teach it, on, on the one hand, in the classical mode, students are very passive recipients. They just learn, they memorize things. And then, as you said, if you teach science more as a process of gathering and evaluating evidence, suddenly the students are more active because they have to gather evidence. They have to evaluate it. They're more active. They're doing stuff. And it's also easier to make that link to the relevance to their lives because, you know, it's, it's much harder to explain to a, a student why it's relevant that they need to know that, I don't know, this element reacts in a certain way with another element you know, what is the purpose of that versus, um, you know, you will always need to know how to gather evidence and evaluate it to make decisions in anything in your life, right? Like if you're buying a house, you need to choose between these two houses somehow. And what you need to do, you need to gather information about the houses. You need to evaluate it and weigh it. So there's more relevance to those skills. Just very quickly on what you were saying, like they take those skills away with them for much longer. Um, and I think it's about like what what is the main objective? Like Joe was saying there, do we want students to just remember information for a short period of time for an exam, or do we want people, young people, to learn a way of being that's more sustainable, more beneficial to them and everybody around them? And like being in an environment that values that idea is is just so much more engaging. And I think that's where like the different approaches can be applied i think i think i agree that there's there is this two different ways of 
um, applying this paper, like it's relevant to us now because we now we kind of do a bit more of this communication of science, and so it's about matching our message to the students. But I think there's also there there's definitely also implications for how science needs to be taught, because in a lot of ways, if science is taught as a process, if we if we teach science with this this Kuhnian model of different paradigms, and you gather evidence to disprove certain paradigms. If you teach it that way, then the work of science communicators in some ways is much easier, right? Because, you know, if, if all kids are, are taught those science skills from a young age, then they can go out there and they can learn and interpret the science on their own because they're equipped with those skills. Um, and so it, the persuading, as you said, Patty, on, on our side as communicators is much easier because all we need to do is present the evidence and we can leave it to the kids to, to evaluate it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the like last things I wrote down when I was trying to like sum up all my information and views on this was like, do we teach students about how or why science happens and do we debate it enough? Uh, and I just literally have written on this piece of paper. No, like, <laughs> I think it's reflective of a more fundamental issue within mainstream education. I hope that um, this paper and discussion has been useful. As always, full notes from this show will be available from our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And there you'll also find the citation for this paper. And if you want to dig a little bit deeper into it, I'll include links to a few other papers you might be interested in as well. If you've got any questions or comments, then please do send them in to us. Our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Final thing is to say thank you very much to my two guests. Thank you very much, Joe and Patty, for being on the show with me. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Thank you.